This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's show, Professor Guy Lechziner. Doctor, author, and expert on neurology, he's here to discuss how our brains process the senses and how we can all make a bit more sense of them. Our host today is the science broadcaster, author, and physicist, Helen Chersky. Here's Helen with more. A few years ago, I made a documentary series on colour for the BBC, and I did the thing that you do these days. I asked the social media what everyone wanted to know about this topic, and I got loads of responses, but it was really striking that over half were the same question, and this was that question. Is the red that you see the same as the red that I see? And I never found out why it was always red, but I thought it was fascinating that most of the time we stride through the world with confidence that we can see or hear or smell everything that's important and that we know what's real. But underneath it all, there's clearly doubt. What if the red that you see isn't the red that I see? What if our senses aren't showing us a solid cast iron truth that we can all agree on? And I think that that's the reason it was such a common question, because the implications are mind blowing if we can't trust our senses. So today we're going to be talking about the ways that our brain and body deal with sensory information. What happens when those systems go wrong and how we should think about our sensory abilities. Our guest is Professor Guy Lechner, an expert in neurology and how our brains understand sensory information. He is a consultant neurologist within the Department of Neurology and Sleep Disorders Centre at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospitals here in London. And in 2019, his book, The Nocturnal Brain, came out, which was a very successful book exploring the neurological mysteries of sleep. He has a new book just arriving called The Man Who Tasted Words, and this weaves examples from his clinical practice with a careful explanation of what we know about what's happening as we sense the world and what it all means. And it is a beautiful book. It's full of empathy and expertise and very human experience. So Guy, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Hi, Helen. Loads to talk about here, but I just wanted to get started to set the scene a bit with your clinical work in this area. Could you just tell us a little bit about the the job that you do and how you got into it. Yeah, so I'm I'm a clinical neurologist, which means that I see individuals in clinic and try and diagnose and treat their neurological disorders. As, as you mentioned in your introduction, I do some specialist work in the areas of, of sleep and epilepsy, but as neurologists, because there are not an awful lot of us in the UK. We tend to be generalists as well. So we will see people who have a whole range of neurological problems. And amongst those individuals are individuals who have either lost a sense or have an exaggeration of a particular sense. And and so this is, was really the template for this book. And there's something that you say near the start of the book. Obviously, you spend a lot of time thinking 
using your brain to think about what's inside the brain and how the brain connects to the outside world. And there's something you say near the start of the book, which is that all of us are really living a virtual life inside our own minds. And I thought that was a good place to start. So explain that virtual life to us. So I think the starting point for all of this, from from my perspective, was really to try and look at how individuals who have very, very minor issues with their nervous system, sometimes as, as minor as a particular chemical or a particular change in the genetic code, can result in their world or their perception of the world being turned upside down. That was really the starting point. But if you begin to understand that actually a single DNA sequence change can result in, for example, an inability to experience any sort of pain in your life, then you begin to understand the fragility of our reality in the context of how our nervous systems are made up. And when this project started developing and you start to explore some of these areas and you look at the the breadth of the experience, the breadth of human experience that is the case for individuals who essentially have normal nervous systems, then that really does result in some mind-blowing questions, which is, well, if everybody experiences reality somewhat differently, then what on earth is reality? And it comes back to this concept that actually the way that we experience reality is a is a construct of our nervous systems. It's not necessarily to do with the cold, hard molecules that surround us, but is to do with how our brains interpret that reality. So when it comes to that question that I was asked on Twitter, is the red that you see the same as the red that I see? What's, what's your answer to that? So uh, my answer to that is I, I don't know, but when one looks at other examples, so one of the examples that I use in the book is of individuals who have this condition called synesthesia. So synesthesia classically is the, the melding of, of two or more sensors, but it, it actually can be interpreted much more broadly. But if you look at a whole bunch of individuals who have synesthesia, and by the way, they are normal, we think that up to about 4% of the population have this a melding of sensors, then each of those individuals may have a completely different perception of an object sitting in front of them or a sensory experience. Now, obviously, because the majority of us don't have synesthesia, we can say, well, that's not reality because the majority of us experience that you know, that apple on the table or, or that piece of music in the same way as far as we can tell. But actually, if the vast majority of individuals had synesthesia, then the reality would be very, very different for all of us. Uh, and so if you think that the range of human experience is so broad, then it's likely that it's going to affect, you know, all of our senses and all of us with normal brains as well. We'll get to some specifics in a bit, but just on this general... You, you you talk about there being flaws in our nervous system, I think, that, that you know, it's, it's a certain, that, and that means, our, you know, basically, if you think about being a human, we are an organism in a world where there is a flood of information zooming past us all the time. There is sound, both sound that we can hear and we can't hear and lights and vibrations and like we're just, you know, sort of entities in this avalanche of information. And, and somehow we have to make sense of that. And, and just tell us a little bit about the how the brain copes with this avalanche. Yeah, in, a, in an ideal world, our brains would be supercomputers. They would be able to reconstruct our environment on a millisecond by millisecond basis without any delay, 
constantly. But of course, our brains aren't supercomputers. They're very, very powerful, but they cannot cope with some of the processing issues that are involved in understanding our reality. And there are three major issues. The first is we always live a little bit in the past. And what I mean by that is, for example, if you are playing football or playing tennis and you see the ball coming towards you, by the time that visual image of the ball has reached the areas of the brain that are involved in conscious interpretation of vision, it's it's several milliseconds later. So we're always li- living a little bit in the past. The, se- the second issue is we just don't have the bandwidth to be able to take every single sensory input from our bodies and interpret those on a, a uh, ongoing basis. And, and the third issue is that there is inherent ambiguity to whatever we see. So if, for example, we see a small red car in front of us, that could be a normal sized car a few meters away, but it could also be a model car very close to us. And there is this inherent ambiguity to everything that we experience. So so in cognitive neuroscience, there is this view now that is very widely held that the brain is a, a prediction machine and essentially takes those sensory inputs, limited sensory inputs, and uses our own understanding of the world and places a prediction upon those sensory inputs. And this is all with a view to trying to overcome some of these issues, trying to generate shortcuts to enable us to function properly in the world. I do remember seeing a few years ago, I think it was a video of, it was a, it was a very a professional footballer and they were in you know, a room and they had to kick a ball into a goal and someone threw the ball and they had to you know kick it. But the thing that was amazing about the video was that they turned the lights off you know, some point before the ball got to the footballer and he still got it in the back of the net. And, you know, most humans go, wow, that's amazing because we assume that he is using the information at the point he strikes the ball. But actually, as you say, he had to make a prediction, right? His leg had to be in the right place. It had to start moving beforehand. Obviously, there's prediction. So so this you, you talk about top-down and bottom-up information. And so there's these two things the, the, the brain is trying to mesh together. Tell us a little bit about that. So, so I think the the, cl- the classical view, or, or you know how I grew up being educated at school, is that the sensors are simply a feeding of information from the outside world to the inside. But actually, the way that we tend to think of the amount of information processing that occurs within our nervous system also suggests that actually our brains can influence how those data of our outside world are actually accrued. So that there are streams of information coming from the outside in, but also from the inside out. And when you start to look at some of the phenomena that people exhibit, so for example, hallucinations in sensory deprivation or hallucinations when people go blind or lose their hearing, then one begins to see that actually the brain very much influences the collection and the interpretation of those data, even when it comes to, for example, being able to hear very quiet or very loud sounds. We know that there are there are circuits within the brain that influence quite how sensitive our ears are to particular frequencies. So, so there is this constant interplay and, and that, that is described as a bottom-up and top-down approach. And there's some quite fascinating examples you give in the book of actually the blind spot in people's eyes that, you know, the brain is filling in. We assume that we are seeing what we're looking at is what we're seeing, but actually our brain is, it, it, it knows what was there three seconds ago. And it may well assume that what's there three seconds ago is what, what's there now. And so it, we don't see the gaps, which was a fascinating idea. 
Yeah, I mean, it always surprises me, even now, having done it for, you know, 25 years when, you know, I'm examining somebody for their blind spot and I find my own blind spot and there's always this, oh my God, you know, this is there, despite the fact that I know it to be the case and despite the fact that I've illustrated it many times. I, I think it's a good illustration that perhaps we shouldn't necessarily always uh, believe what we see. You know, seeing is believing is is the, the, the common expression, but perhaps that's wrong. Well, perhaps just describe that. I think it was something to so you cover one eye and there's a pen that you describe so everyone can have a go as they're listening. Yeah. So, so what we all have a blind spot and that blind spot relates to where the optic nerve, the bundle of nerve fibers leaves the, the globe of the eye. And within that region, there are no light receptors. That blind spot is in each eye, it's about 15 degrees uh, to the side from the center of vision. And you can actually demonstrate this uh, for yourself. For example, if you get a, 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 a biro with a colored tip and you cover one eye, so for, for, for purposes of description, if you cover the um, right eye and you hold the pen out to the side on the left, fixate your vision onto a point in the distance, and then very gradually bring the pen in towards the center of vision. And about 15 degrees away from the center of vision, you will be able to find a spot where that colored top of the biro disappears because it is entirely swallowed up within the blind spot. If you move it up a little, it'll reappear. If you move it to the side a little, it'll reappear. But there will be this very small physiological blind spot that we all have and that we're all in day-to-day life not aware of. I think that's great. I encourage everyone to try that because it's one of the, like it's reading your book, one of the great things about it is it's very relatable. But on the other hand, you know, our brain hides these tricks from us. It hides from us what it's doing. So I think you know, good examples. Uh, things we can actually try for ourselves are great. Um, well, let's get into some of the types of sensing. Now, there's lot, there's lots of examples in the book, but the pro- you know, difficulties with sensing come in several categories. So let's start with the obvious one, which is that a person can't sense something that really is there. And you start near the start of the book with this example of Paul, who can't feel pain, which seems so alien to most of us. So just tell us a little bit about Paul. So Paul is a young man who carries a genetic mutation that has damaged an important molecule, something called an iron channel, which is essentially very important for the transmission of electrical impulses within the nervous system. And what this mutation has done is it's resulted in this iron channel not working at all, which means that actually he is completely unable to feel physical pain. Now, in many respects, you think, well, that is wonderful not to ever be able to feel physical pain. But unfortunately, you know, what Paul's case illustrates is the importance of pain to the human experience. You know, it's very important that we know what physically damages us us and what doesn't. So Paul's uh, parents are full of stories of him, you know, actually getting benefit from injuring himself. He would, you know, regularly jump off the roof and break his legs. Uh, at one point, he st- started trying to pull out his own teeth because he realized that he would get a pound for every tooth that he pulled out. Uh, if his parents tried to punish him, he would sit there and, and break his own fingers. Uh, and you know, really horrific stories that resulted in, you know, terrible damage to him physically and to some extent psychologically as well. Because uh, if you think about what happens if you don't have pain, 
you don't really learn any major lessons from the outside world. Anybody who's had children will realize that actually it's very important for them to understand that if they jump off a you know, a step and they hurt themselves, that's not a good thing to do. If, you know, they steal their siblings' toys and they get a slap, then that perhaps is not the right thing to do. A slap from their sibling rather than their parents, of course. So his his understanding of other people as well is 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 influenced because he is not able to really empathize with anybody who experiences pain. You know, his father uses the term it's a bit like trying to teach a blind man about colours. This is something that is so far outside his experience that he has no fundamental understanding of it. And it's it's an interesting one to start with as well, because obviously we we sort of we're taught somewhere along the way, someone says, don't actually know where it comes from, that we have five senses. And pain isn't actually one of them. So so that pain is an interesting example because it actually opens up the things that we sense that we we don't think of as senses. So you know, talk to us about tell us about those. So so pain in, in neurological terms we very much include within the the sense of, of sensation or touch. It's painful touch. But you're you you know you're absolutely right that this concept of five senses is is somewhat incorrect in that there are senses that we are really not necessarily aware of at all unless they go wrong. So so the two examples of that I think that come out hopefully most strongly in the book is this sense of a joint position sense. So being able to understand where our bodies are in space, where our limbs are in relation to each other. Something that we really have no conscious awareness of at all, but it's only when it goes wrong, as in one of the examples in the book, that we realise quite how fundamentally important it is. It's really important to being able to walk, being able to move, being able to, to do every day, you know, everyday tasks. The other sense that we're perhaps not really aware of until it goes wrong is our sense of balance or knowing where our head is in in, in space. It goes wrong when, for example, we're seasick or when as children we've spun round on the merry-go-round uh, for ages and then try and walk in a straight line. But it's only when something goes wrong with the balance organs in your inner ear that you are devastated by ongoing vertigo, vertigo in a, in a medical sense, which is a sensation of ongoing spinning, which can be completely life-changing. And how much, you, you know, you, you, you've spoken about sensing sort of going wrong. And I guess these, you know, not being able to feel pain is something's definitely gone wrong. But how much, how much variation on these things is normal within the population? You know, we're sort of becoming, coming to accept more in society that there is variation. There isn't one way of being human and you're not necessarily wrong if you're different. So where does, where does difference you know, sort of slide into going wrong. Well, yeah. So, so, so there's the sort of philosophical side of what constitutes different, but from a from a, a medical, from a clinical perspective, it, you know, different is usually when it starts to create problems for you. So, you know, that there are two illustrations I give of that. One is synesthesia, which of course affects a very a much higher proportion of the population than, than we're necessarily aware of. As I said, about 4% experience some synesthetic experiences. But the other the other example that I give is of a condition called aphantasia, which is this inability to conjure up a visual image in your in your mind's eye. And, you know, for some people, that clearly is a pathological state that sometimes uh, occurs as a result of a stroke or a, a brain injury. But actually... We now understand that a very high proportion of the normal population 
don't necessarily have that ability to conjure up something in the mind's eye. So, so there is a spectrum of, of, of humanity that I think is encompassed by the term neurodiversity. Now, where diversity becomes pathology is very arguable. But I think in, in the context of, of the clinical setting, it's when it becomes a problem for you in your every, everyday life. Well, let's come on to, well, perhaps touch on something on, on the topic of, of not being able to sense what is there. Just we have during the lockdowns and things, a lot of us ran out of things to sense. It wasn't so much that we couldn't sense something that was there. It was that there wasn't anything there to sense, right? You know, the world looked the same every day. We were perhaps talking to people less, we, you know, certainly when it comes to touch, you know, not being able to hug people, all of that, that there was sensory deprivation there. So what does that do to you? Because I imagine if you can't sense it because it isn't there, or you can't sense it just because it is there and you can't sense it. I mean, to, to your brain, either way, you're not getting any stimulation. Mm-hmm. What what does that do? Well, I think there are there are the psychological consequences, of course, which I'm probably not best placed to to discuss. But from from a, a broader perspective, we know that if you have a, a disruption of inputs to the brain, particularly in the into the sensory areas of the brain. That's something called deafferentation. So, for example, individuals who go blind and the the visual part of their brain is cut off from the outside world. We know that there are some changes that occur within those sensory areas that essentially I describe in the book as, you know, the brain is so keen to see that when not being given anything to see, it will create visions for itself. And so one of the examples that I give is of a a young woman who loses her vision entirely due to a series of accidents and and illnesses. And over time, she begins to experience very vivid visual hallucinations. The other example that I give is, um, you know, interestingly, Bill Oddy, who who has lost some of his hearing. And I think that this has obviously affected his ability to listen to birdsong. But as a result of this, he now begins to experience music wherever he goes. He experiences musical hallucinations. So essentially, if you cut off the inputs, then the brain will generate its own inputs. And and this goes back to what we discussed a moment ago, which is the brain being a, a prediction machine in that, you know, essentially, if you don't give it anything to any inputs to base predictions on, it will create its own predictions. And it's thought that that is the basis for these kinds of phenomena. But it may also explain some of uh, the issues that we see, for example, in psychosis, where people hallucinate or when people take psychedelic drugs, that it's the the the, the sensory experiences are generated internally rather than as a result of external inputs. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is quite disconcerting when it happens. A few years ago, I was put in an anechoic chamber, which is, you know, it's a great big space surrounded by foam where basically it takes, there's no reflect, there's no reflection of sound. So anything, if you make a sound, it just sort of disappears into the walls. And it was, you know, after a while, actually, I was having a busy time. So I was quite happy to have no sensory input. I was happier in there than I'd been for quite a long time, as I recall. And they came in expecting me to be sort of going slightly mad. And I was like, no, can you go away? I'm quite happy. But I did, <laughs> I did start. I definitely started to hear things. I mean, not it wasn't a very serious way. I was in there for maybe 45 minutes, I think. But, um, you know, the sort of rumbling and things that definitely I'm not normally aware of. And, and it did feel like my brain was making it up. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't mind. I have to say, I didn't find it distressing. It was just, it, it was, you know, th- there was just some sound there. But I guess you didn't find it distressing because you knew you, you could open the door to the chamber and everything would return to normal. It's when that is, you know, your experience day in, day out, and you don't necessarily have the the, the prospect of, of release, then then it must become very distressing indeed. Well, let's then just pick up on your conversation with Bill Oddy then, because that it's a really interesting example that you describe him, he describes to you hearing music and it is, it's not sort of necessarily recognizable tunes, but he's aware of it. And it's, it's almost all the time. Tell us a little bit about what, what he told you. So Bill uh, told me that this started a couple of years ago when he was awake in the middle of the night and he thought that the neighbours were playing music on the radio very loudly and started over the next few weeks going around various rooms and trying to identify the source of of the music. Over time, what has become apparent is that he often has a a musical accompaniment of kind of 1920s, 30s and 40s music that he describes as sort of jaunty wartime tunes, usually with, with brass instruments, occasionally a bit of singing that accompanies him wherever he goes. Now, one of his major complaints is that if he got to choose his music, this would be the last music that he would choose. And he finds it incredibly distracting and annoying. 
you know, how big an impact this has on his life uh, is perhaps reduced by the fact that he knows that this is not real. So, so this is the big difference between somebody who's having a psychotic experience and is convinced that their hallucinations are real. Whereas in, in this context, you know, they should perhaps be better known as pseudo hallucinations because, you know, Bill knows they're not real, like the woman who experiences visual hallucinations knows they're not real. But nevertheless, they're very intrusive and, and, and potentially quite distressing. And do we know anything about how many people have them? Because I think, I think you mentioned in the book that people, they don't know they have something. It comes to that thing, comes back to that thing of what's normal, right? If, yeah. if you've always had it or it's come on very slowly, you don't necessarily think about it. Yeah. Are, they, are these common, these sorts of things? Well, I think they're much more common than we're aware of. You know, we know that hearing loss, which is often a precursor to the to things like tinnitus, and I think probably tinnitus is the best example of a, albeit very, very straightforward hallucination. Essentially, you don't have a ringing in the real world, but your brain or your ear is generating that ringing sensation. We, we know that hearing loss is incredibly common. In fact, you know, pretty much everybody over the age of 80 will have hearing loss. And, you know, a huge proportion of individuals over the age of 50 will have hearing loss. So so these are these failings in our Sensory systems are incredibly common. Tinnitus certainly is very common in the in, in the clinical population. If we ask individuals who come into our our clinics whether or not they ever experience ringing in their ears, it's very very commonly described. Musical hallucinations slightly less so. Although if you actually ask people, for example, in a hearing clinic, have you ever heard musical hallucinations? The the proportion of individuals who will who will admit that is surprisingly high when they're directly questioned, but they often don't volunteer it because they kind of think, oh, well, maybe people are going to think I'm getting mad or does this illustrate something else about what my nervous system is doing? And this is a different thing from people kind of singing inside their own head deliberately. This is, it's almost like their list is coming, almost as though it's coming from outside. Yes, exactly. So it's different from from the the you know the earworm that you're singing along to constantly when you've heard it on the radio that morning this is a true experience of hearing something what does it do to your i mean you're obviously also a human who walks around in the world and your senses are playing all these games and tricks just like everyone else's what does sort of seeing patients that really highlight what the senses are doing what does it do to your perception in the everyday world yeah, I, I, I've been thinking about this quite a lot because, you know, obviously we see ind- individuals with these kinds of problems day in, day out. And, you know, as a, as a clinician, you, well, first of all, you're focused on making a diagnosis, on giving people treatment. And you don't sit there and and, and analyze and uh, have this internal dialogue with yourself on a day-to-day basis because you don't have the time. And quite frankly, you would go mad. But I've definitely been sucked down the rabbit hole in the context of of writing this book in that it really does make me question how what I perceive to be the cold, hard reality of the world may actually be completely different. And maybe I have no fundamental understanding of the world in which I inhabit, which is totally mind-blowing. And I'm not sure that I'm any better placed than anybody else to be able to fully comprehend that. It's a difficult thing, isn't it? You know, in the in the world of science, we are, you know, I, I train my students to question what they think is true, right? You make a measurement and, mm-hmm. and you trust the measurement. And then you think about how you made the measurement and you think about whether you can trust that. But in a way, that's, it's very, 
we can pretend in that case that we're separating our human selves from our scientific selves. You know, we can have it as an aim. It's yeah. never going to be perfect. But but I, but I guess in a way, the scientific method does reflect that because what we're always doing is we're testing a hypothesis and it always remains a hypothesis. And And, and so, you know, you know, even if we take universal truths like, for example, you know, relativity, which remains a theory of relativity, you know, there still remains this element throughout every aspect of science that we still don't know the absolute truth. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because for the pragmatic among the scientists, which is not everyone actually, but anyway, the there is there is a, there is a philosophical line really, which says that can it make a prediction? Like you've got this conceptual model that's very nice but the the game is is it useful can it can it make a prediction about what will happen next and if it does make a prediction there's there's a line of philosophy that says well it doesn't matter whether it's right or not you know it doesn't matter whether that is the actual deep nature of the universe what matters is if you want to know where that electron's going you definitely find out where the electron's going so 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 from an evolutionary perspective of course the, whether or not our senses tell us what reality is, is not important. What What is important is that whatever it is we are sensing enables us to pass on our genes, to be able to survive and pass on our genes. And in fact, there are some theories uh, as to the fact that actually our brains are simply unable to comprehend what reality is, and that essentially what we're being shown is a, is a huge oversimplification is simply like icons on a, on a on a computer screen that allow us to do what we need to do but don't actually show us what's going on in the real world well for anyone who thinks that life is quite complicated enough already that's that's a reassuring thought and <laughs> <laughs> this is only a fraction it gets far worse uh, but your brain is hiding it from you so it's okay let's let's come to Joanne and sensing what isn't there so our sense of smell has been on everyone's mind for at least a couple of years now. And and there are people, and I, and I think, I don't know how common this is. I, I've definitely met a few who have an altered sense of smell even before COVID, you mm. know, that s things that tasted, smelt fine to everyone else, smelt really unpleasant to them. But I wanted to get to this question of smell and emotion. So perhaps describe what happened to Joanne a little bit, but then why? how does this link to emotions? So Joanne had a very bad cold at some point a few years ago. And following this cold, she began to experience that really everything in her life had a terribly disgusting smell, a smell of something rotting or decay. And uh, this became really all per pervasive to the extent where she couldn't stand to be around individuals wearing scents. She couldn't, you know, go for a walk because the smell of smoke would fill her nose with the smell of, uh, of rotting decay. Uh, and it began to have some very far reaching implications. She began to be unable to socialize, to sit in the room with her family and have dinner. And it became something that really made her quite depressed. Now, we can understand why that sort of social isolation as a result of this phenomenon might cause you to become depressed. But actually, what we're beginning to understand is that smell and the emotional parts of our brain are very intimately linked in that smell is a really interesting sense because essentially, for, for most of our senses, there is a barrier between the brain and that sense. So, you know, with regard to touch, there are the, there's the skin, there's the nerves, there's the spinal cord. Whereas actually the, the olfactory nerve, which is the nerve through which sensory uh, experiences are conducted, 
is essentially part of the brain. And it's the only part of the body where the brain is in direct contact with the outside world. And those fibres reach directly into, you know, quite evolutionary old parts of our brain that are involved in emotion, in emotional processing. And uh, we see that there are very strong links between smell and mood, smell and depression. And so it's quite possible that when individuals lose their sense of smell or their smell is altered in some way, that that actually has some fundamental changes to the parts of the brain that are involved in emotional processing and that the depression that people often experience may be entirely or not entirely unrelated, but at least not entirely explained by the social changes that occur. So just to pick up on that point about the brain touching the world directly, I, I think, uh, correct me if I, if I got this wrong, but you know, you're, you, what you describe in the book, I think, is that you know, the part of your brain kind of is behind your face, let's say, approximately. So your, your nasal, where you're sensing at the top and the back of your nose, you know, there is a part of the brain that's quite close to that and it kind of reaches through and that's where your smell, your smell sensing that's where the little sensors are. So it's a very direct connection. It's a very direct connection because essentially the the, the nerve fibres that constitute essentially part of the brain reach through uh, a, an area of bone that has got lots of little perforations in it and are, are directly inside the, the nasal mucosa, the mucous membrane that is at the top of your nose. So essentially this is where the brain, the only place where the brain meets the outside world. Now that has some really important implications because... Uh, you know, particularly in when COVID first hit, and we realised that smell was involved, and that this raised the possibility that actually the coronavirus might actually have a, an affinity for invading and damaging nerve fibres. That raised lots of alarm bells because you know neurologists historically have seen lots of examples of epidemics. You know. The, the most obvious of which is the polio epidemic, where, where a virus had a particular affinity for the nervous system. And so at the start of, of the pandemic, uh, there was definitely a, a real fear that what we were going to see was another one of these uh, pandemics that resulted in lots and lots of very severe neurological complications. Now, you know, as luck would have it, yes, we have seen quite a lot of neurological complications of COVID, but these probably relate to, for example, being stuck on ITU for a prolonged period of time, being in the prone position for a prolonged period of time, occasional strokes and things like that. But but what has become apparent is that it's probably that the, the, the loss of the sense of smell associated with COVID is fortunately not necessarily due to direct damage of those nerve fibres, but actually due to the supporting structures around those nerve fibres. It's the the epithelium, the, the the nasal mucous membranes themselves that are damaged rather than the nerve cells, which I think is a huge relief to us. And you, I mean, you said that um, the you know the, your sense of smell is particularly vulnerable to viruses because it is you know that's the place the viruses go right up yeah. your nose. Yeah. I, I had COVID, I did lose my sense of smell. And it again, it was one of those things that for a short period, it was quite good fun because, I, well, I mean, I was hoping it was coming back. I didn't actually know. It wasn't like someone was going to open the door and let me out. It was really interesting to see what it affected and what it didn't affect, mm. I think. So let's touch on that a little bit, which is that we think our senses are separated. You know, we think we're looking at this, we're hearing that thing over there and touching this. But perhaps inside, it's not so clear which one is doing what? 
Is it how how mixed up are all our senses? Yeah, I think inside? so. So I, I think there are two examples that I can give to people. So 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 the first is a video, and I would encourage everybody to go and do this. So go to YouTube or whatever video platform you want, and type in McGurk effect, which is M C G U R K, and what you'll see is you'll see a video of either a, you know, of an individual who is saying bar 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 repeatedly. And then some point, the video will change and the person is saying far, far, far. But actually the soundtrack to that video throughout is bar, bar, bar. It's just the movement of the mouth that has changed. So essentially what is happening is that your vision is overriding your your hearing and is expecting you to hear a change in the first consonant purely based on vision despite the fact that the hearing remains stable all the way through and that i think is quite disconcerting to see the the other really good example that everybody will experience but not necessarily be aware of is that what we consider to be the sense of taste is actually a, a mix of three different senses so it's a mix of the true sense of taste but to a very large extent, taste is defined by smell. It's de- de- defined by retronasal olfaction. So basically, the gases from our mouth being conducted to our nose uh, uh, from behind rather than the front. And also mouthfeel, so sensation within the mouth. And, and so what we perceive to be an illusion of uh, uh, what we perceive to be a taste coming from our mouth is actually an illusion. It's actually an amalgam of all those three. And probably I would argue that the true neurological sense of taste is the least contributive to our own experience of taste or flavour. I think um, a colleague of mine at, at UCL, Professor Mark Miodovnik, did some experiments where he had spoons that were not only made of different metals, but some of them were different shapes, like they had rough surfaces and spiky mm. surfaces, and and things tasted different to people. Mm. And it, and it is you you know you assume we assume I mean it comes down to the fact that we assume we know we assume we know what we're doing, yeah. and we clearly our brain is not letting on. There's a lot of philosophy in a lot of this, I guess. But let's, let's deal with some of the practical bits. You know. It's, is society getting better at understanding people with sensory differences? Because I guess for a lot of history, as with many medical complaints, people have been regarded as, you know, mad or just old or ill or, you know, a, a whole range of quite derogatory things. Mm. Are we getting better at helping people who have you know, things that are not their fault. It's not their fault that they can see something that we can't see. Yeah. Well, I guess that, you know, that is, in, in, to some extent, that's a political question, isn't it? Uh, you know, I think, I think we're becoming, as a society, we're becoming more aware of the differences between individuals and accepting them as differences rather than inferiorities or, or, or superiorities, which I think is definitely a move in the right direction. Now, do I think that we do everything that we can do to help individuals with you know, disabilities, for want of a, a, a better terminology, and the answer to that clearly is no. Um, and 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 there are sort of much wider issues surrounding, you know, the welfare state and and what we do to support people in their in their daily lives, not just with regard to that specific failure or or, or inability to perceive a particular sense. And how about the links between 
our senses and other aspects of well-being. So you mentioned that, you know, there are, especially with smell, there are very direct emotional connections, mm. you know, which actually makes me wonder whether buying someone a beautifully scented bunch of flowers would actually genuinely cheer them up just because of the nice smell, unless mm. they've got COVID. Mm. I mean, actually, let's, let's touch on that. Is, is that a thing? Would, would nicely smelling flowers cheer people up? Well, I think nicely smelling flowers would always cheer somebody up, but I'm not sure how much we can attribute that to the smell or not. I don't know is the answer. Fair enough. That is the proper side scientific answer. Um, so how about, you know, well-being in general? So so we are, you know, I think there's a lot of awareness now about how we do lots of things. And sometimes it feels like the world is a very bossy place, should do this, shouldn't do that, all mm. of that kind of stuff. Mm. But but when it comes to kind of taking our senses seriously, because the, the picture you paint is one of, you know, it's, it's like we need to understand, we have an amazing sensory system, you know, we perhaps don't quite live up to the sharks, but apart from that, we have an amazing sensory system. But we also have to be aware of its limitations, just as normal humans. So, so how do we, how do we think about ourselves? How, you know, in the context of everything you've written in your book and, and the sort of work you do on this, like, how do we think about ourselves as sensing beings? Do should we trust our senses? What do how like? How does this change being us? Well, I think we have no option but to trust our senses because that's the best that we can do. We, we, you know, Aristotle wasn't that wrong because he proposed that really the senses were the start of everything. And I, and I think that's definitely right. You know, the senses are our window on the world that we inhabit. Without our senses, essentially, we would just be in, in a black box. And, you know, everything that we learn, everything that we experience is through that window. So we have no option but at one level to trust our senses because that's all, all we've got. I, I think that, and this is sort of going more to the, towards the philosophical now, I think that and, and, and to some extent, I think this plays to to my own views with my scientific background, is that, you know, as a scientist, one of the things that you often say, or perhaps you should say a bit more often is, I don't know, or I'm not sure. Uh, and I think that, you know, people get into trouble when they say something that they're not really sure about, but actually don't let on to the fact that they don't know. I, I think we just need to be a little bit more questioning about our senses and perhaps understand that there are limitations to our senses and that it may be that the reason why I don't agree with the person opposite me is because of something as basic as the fact that they see the world in a very slightly different way to how I see it. And I think, you know, perhaps it's it's more a case of understanding that we are all different and, and that may be attributable to how our nervous systems function rather than because the person who I disagree with is 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 evil or, uh, you know, in error in some way. So we don't need to, if, if someone says a colour is red and someone else says it's brown, we don't need to question our whole notion of reality. We just need to understand that those are two different perceptions of the same thing. Yeah. And mostly that's okay. For the most part, that's okay. Yeah. I think that would be very reassuring to lots of people who had debates about that dress and whether it was black and brown or yellow and gold. I actually have that dress and I swear I've broken friendships with it. I occasionally wear it out <laughs> and I walk into a room wearing it and I have seen this happen and people turn to their friend and say, I told you so. Well, <laughs> I, yeah. One of them was right. <laughs> I, I guess, I guess the, the answer to that is uh, the reality of the colour of that dress is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. 
<laughs> so anyone who thought it was white and gold, it was the white one and I have gold. In my wardrobe yeah. is very definitely blue and black. In your, as far as you're concerned, it's white and gold, and you're fine. And and just the nature of reality. Then you've talked about how we understand the world. Is it all? I mean, is it all right that our reality? What's real? Your guess is as good as mine. I, you know, <laughs> I, I think I think that this, you know, this is the you know the nature of an ongoing debate on in the cognitive neuroscience and philosophy worlds. I think there are some indiv- look. Uh, you know, for the most part, most scientists would say, well, look, you know, our senses give us some basic understanding of what the reality around us is. You know, it may not give us all the information. It gives us some limited information, and depending on you know, whether or not we're a fly or a human, we may see a flower in an entirely different way, but essentially the flower is really there. You know, as I've, as I've mentioned before, there are outliers and these are not, these are not quacks. These are not, you know, pseudoscientists or crazies. These are, you know, proper academics who actually think that reality is something very, very different. And, you know, the, the, the illustration that, that um, one scientist has given me is it, it's a bit like uh, the Matrix, you know, when he chooses which pill to take. But the big difference is, is when he chooses to come out of the Matrix, he's in the real world. Whereas actually in our lives, if we choose to take that pill, we still don't have any fundamental understanding of what the real world is, which is, which is you know, quite scary. To, to consider that actually maybe none of what we perceive to be reality is real. Well, that is a great place to finish. For anyone who is interested in questioning the nature of their reality and what their senses have to say about it, I highly recommend Guy's book, which is The Man Who Tasted Words. So thank you very much for talking to me today, Guy. My guest was Guy Leshtiner, the author of the book, The Man Who Tasted Words, and that book is out now from Simon & Schuster. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, and I'm Helen Chersky. Thank you for listening. Thank you.